In our gospel reading today, would you please stand with me for the reading of the Holy Gospel? Our gospel reading today is from John's Gospel, chapter 21, continuing on from last week, reading verses 15 to 25. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, Son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but... When you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it's my will that he shall remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who was bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose, that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated today. Let's pray again. Gracious Father, we thank you once again for your Holy Spirit, who is the teacher of the faithful. And so with our Bibles open before us, we pray that you'd speak to us as only you can. That you'd search us and know us, and see if there be any wicked way in us, and that you would lead us in the way everlasting. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts today together, may they be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. For we prayed in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> well, today's passage is about Peter. And uh, the Apostle Peter, among all the disciples in the Gospels, is uniquely significant. As Protestants, we can get kind of nervous, can't we? When we hear about the 
talk of Peter's uniqueness or his primacy, and understandably so, but we have no business contesting his prominence in the gospel accounts. No disciple in the gospel speaks to the Lord as often as Peter does, and the Lord speaks to no other disciple as often as he does to Peter. Alexander White, the great uh, Scottish Presbyterian pastor of the 19th century and early 20th, he's helpful here. He writes, We cannot read our New Testament without coming on proofs on every page that Peter had a foremost place among the twelve disciples. Four times, continues White, the list of elected men is given in the Gospels, and while the order of names varies in all other respects, Peter's name is invariably the first, even as Judas's name is invariably the last. Peter's important. And our whole passage today is about Peter. It's about his fall, and it's about his reinstatement to ministry. And it's important for us all to recognize today that Satan picked Peter to sift for a reason. And the Lord picked Peter to pray for, for a reason. Namely, that he would take a position of leadership and according to the Lord's own words, strengthen his brothers. But even though Peter is unique, the passage applies to all of us today. It's about Peter's call into ministry, his lifelong vocation. And since all of us are called to serve the kingdom in one way or another, this lesson today applies very closely to all of us. And so I want to look at three things today. I want to look at how Jesus' dealings with Peter speaks to the condition of ministry, how it speaks to the basis of ministry, and how it speaks to the shape of ministry. The condition, the basis, and the shape in that order. So first of all, the condition of Peter's ministry. Now there have been many attempts to explain what the Lord means when he asks Peter, do you love me more than these? What are the these that he's talking about? It's not self-evident in the text. Is Jesus talking about the tools of the trade? The gear and the tackle, the fishing nets, the lines and the boats. Is Jesus disappointed that Peter's gone back to his old life of fishing, that old vocation? I mentioned last week that this is unlikely. Not only does Jesus help them in their fishing venture, but he enjoys the fruit of their labors. He has a nice charcoal breakfast, and he enjoys all of those or some of those 153 fish. Peter is commendably working with his hands in the absence of any clear direction from the Lord. Peter is not being idle. So it doesn't seem that Jesus is speaking about the fishing, and certainly I don't think he's speaking about the fish. I'm sure fish can love Jesus in their own way, but I don't think he's speaking about the fish. Well, then is Jesus talking then about Peter's love for his fellow disciples? Peter, do you love me more than you love James and John? That would seem hardly likely. There's no reference for that. 
even though we can all make idols of each other very easily with very little effort at all, and even though the kingdom of God comes explicitly to those who must leave their houses and must leave their fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers or children or lands, even though the gospel entails radical separation, this is what it means Still, the narratives of the gospel provide zero context for thinking that any of the disciples, especially Peter, wrestled with preferring each other over the master. Quite to the contrary, they wrestled with infighting over who would be closest to Jesus. Lord, who is going to be on your right hand in your kingdom? And so it doesn't seem that the these refers to Peter's affection for the disciples over his affection for the master. But it does, I think, refer to the disciples. And the key here to understanding is the squabbling that was going on immediately before Peter's fall. Now, the whole section today, remember, is about Peter. It's about his terrible fall. Peter had sworn. Peter had cursed he had sworn an oath that he does not know Jesus at all. Jesus wants to restore Peter. But first, he has to deal with the sin that led to Peter's great collapse. And in Luke's account of Peter's boast in chapter 22, the boast that he'll never forsake Jesus, the boast is prefaced by a debate or a dispute about who will be the greatest among them. And we're not told by the gospel narrator who started the argument, and we're not told who was most culpably responsible for the debate, but immediately after correcting them, Peter leans, or Jesus leans over to Peter, and he says to Peter, Satan has asked for you, Peter. And the proximity of the warning to the argument and to the correction is telling. And it's especially telling when we consider Matthew and Mark's account of Peter's boast to the Lord. Jesus says to his disciples in Mark 14, as he does in Matthew 26, you will all fall away. You will all leave me. You're going to leave the Master. You're going to be scattered. And in both counts, Peter answers revealingly, Lord, even though they fall away. <laughs> Even though all these guys fall away, Lord, I will not. I'm different than these, Lord. I'm made of sterner stuff than these, Lord. My heart isn't as fickle as these, Lord. And now the Lord comes in John 21. He comes to Peter after his shocking failure and he says, do you still think, Peter, that you love me more than these? It's a hard and it's a cutting question and it's designed to humble Peter. It's designed to correct him and to deliver his heart from bad thoughts. And evidently it finds its mark, that arrow, because even though Peter answers in the affirmative, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, Peter, he drops now the demonstrative pronoun, it's gone, and he refuses to compare himself to the these, as he had done before. 
And so this humbling, it's the essential and it's the non-negotiable condition to Peter's ministry. This is the gateway, if you'll have it. We recently watched the film Thor with the kids, the first one. And it was a wonderful family film, I thought. But as we were watching it, it struck me how applicable the story of Thor is to this gospel account, to what's happening to Peter. Thor is beyond boastful. At the beginning of the film, you remember him walking through the crowds and the accolades and him waving his hammer and enjoying it all. He's, he's more than boastful. He is self-assured. Thor is convinced that he has the stuff to be about his father's business. He can serve the needs of Asgard well. But the All-Father sees differently, and he sees all, and he knows that this important hero, Thor, needs to be humbled, and he needs to be stripped, and he needs to fall, and he needs to experience and to know weakness. And only then does Thor become the leader and the shaper of a kingdom that he was always meant to be. And in like manner, the Lord is teaching Peter deep, deep wisdom here. Wisdom that's going to shape the whole of his career. Wisdom that humbles him profoundly. It doesn't make Peter a milksop. It doesn't make Peter a milksop, even as it doesn't make Thor a milksop. The humbling doesn't make Peter a doormat. It doesn't take the fire out of Peter's belly. You recall how ferociously Peter deals with Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8 or in his second epistle, those, those strong words he has for those men, perhaps those women who are disregarding the authority of the church. He calls them in 2 Peter irrational animals. Blots and blemishes, waterless springs, slaves of corruption, dogs who return to their own vomit, pigs who wallow in the mire. Peter's no pushover. But the Lord has weaned Peter from boasting in his own strength. And the Lord needs to do that with each of us. Since we're all called to his service. And the process, my brothers and sisters of the conditioning, it's painful. Peter is grieved, we read in verse 17, because the Lord asks him the third time. Jesus doesn't let it go. He turns the screw, and the pressure gets more intense for Peter. Jesus makes Peter to face the threefold denial squarely, and it hurts Peter. It grieves Peter. But it's the grief that makes way for the gladness of the gospel, and it's the grief that's going to make way for the effectiveness of ministry for Peter, so that he will not preach himself, like Paul says, but he will preach the Lord and be a true shepherd. The condition for Peter's ministry is genuine humility, a virtue not easily acquired, and a state of mind that's obtained only through great sorrow and deep grief. Secondly, and now I'm going to quicken my pace considerably, this passage explains the basis for Peter's ministry. Now, on one level, properly speaking, the basis of all service to God in the kingdom of God 
is the redemption of God through the work of Christ. Because God is reconciling the world to himself through Christ's life and through his death and through his resurrection. Because he is doing this, we go boldly out into the world and we say to men and to women and children, be ye reconciled to God. We beseech them to come. Because God is doing this, you should be doing this. That's the gospel. And that's the kingdom in a nutshell. But now in this passage today, a secondary basis of ministry is explained in terms of love to Christ. If you love me, Jesus says to Peter, then you are ready. Then you are equipped. And then you are able to love and to serve my people. Now there are many things that I could say about this, but I simply want to point out one thing today, that it is always misguided in the very worst way, to think that our love for people is the fundamental factor of our effectiveness for ministry. If we base our ministry on drumming up love and affection for people, we will inevitably fail because that stream will run dry fairly quickly. People disappoint. People hurt. People are abrasive, and people are a good deal worse than that. And no matter what the world tells you, people are not a good fuel for lighting the fire for passionate ministry. The answer to effective ministry is not working up our hearts into some passionate pity for the needs of the world. That's what the commercials will tell you. Oh, look at the plight. Work up your heart. Do something about it. That's not true gospel ministry. But if our basis for ministry is love to Christ, if we do this, whether it's coming early in the afternoon to set up, or making coffee, or preaching the Word, if we do this because we love Him, if we do this because He is stoking the flame of fire in our hearts, if we do this because these are His people, made in His image, made for His glory, then we're promised the power to tend and to care and to nourish and to provide for them. Otherwise, without this basis, we are all going to fall apart and unravel in the work of the ministry. You see, it's on the basis of Peter's professed love to Christ that Jesus gives not only the command, feed my sheep, but Jesus gives the promise, you will feed my sheep. Because the command of God is always the promise of God. Nathan could tell you this afternoon what Augustine says, O oh Lord, he says, give what you command and command what you will. This is why, by the way, the law is always sweet to the Christian because the gospel sets us free to obey it. And therefore we love it. And love to Christ, as we are enabled by the gospel, gives us the power to love people. And no other way. There's no other well. There's no other order. And so how important it is then, brothers and sisters, in the mess of ministry, and messy it is, when we're shoulder to shoulder and cheek to jowl with jagged people that cut us. How important it is that we fix our eyes on Jesus. Love to Christ. 
and not on the sinking fuel gauge of our love to people, which is always going to run empty the longer we look at it. The love of Christ constrains me, writes Paul. The love of Christ constrains me. There he says, I find an unlimited resource to love and to care for God's people. And so the Lord help us, Christ Church, to remember this always. And thirdly, and finally today and briefly, our passage it demonstrates the shape of Peter's ministry. Just before Jesus asked Peter to follow him, just before he says, Peter, I'm going this way, and I want you to come. He paints a picture of Peter's end. When you are old, he says, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress and carry you where you're not going to want to go. John pointedly tells us that Jesus means here to describe Peter's death. And the stretching forth of the hands we know was an ancient idiom for crucifixion. Peter, if you follow me, they're going to crucify you. Not much of a sales pitch, is it? Come with me, Peter, and experience pain and suffering like you've never known it. Follow me. The arms of that cross didn't just terminate there at the end of Peter's life, but they stretched over his whole career. It's not even, uh, it's in Acts chapter 5 that Peter is already being punished and beaten for the sake of the gospel. You see, the shape of ministry to which Jesus calls Peter is cruciform. The shape is only the shape of the cross. And the shape of ministry to which Jesus Christ calls you and me today is always cruciform. And not just in the sense that the world is going to persecute us for the sake of righteousness. That's true. But not just that. But also in the sense that the way of Christ is going to continually put to death in us those things which are unruly and those things which defy the purposes of God in our lives. If you read Martin Luther's Catechism, as I will often do in a small catechism, it says in the morning that when I get up, I should make the sign of the cross and say in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the very first thing I do, before I do anything else, is to put that cross on me. And golly, if I can say golly, it can be fairly easy to cross myself. If I don't remember each time I do it, that the gospel, the gospel of Christ, it crosses me. It crosses against my sinful nature. The gospel cuts right across me and it says no more. So a whole number of things. It says no more will you serve the ways of unrighteousness. No more. It says, no more will you love God less than you love His creation. It says, no more will you live in bitterness and in unforgiveness and in selfish ambition. You are a servant of the cross now. And it will make its imprint upon you as such. And when the gospel of Christ speaks to me like that, and when the gospel of Christ crosses me like that, it hurts me. 
It grieves me. It's painful, brothers and sisters, to be crossed by the Lord. But the pain is the evidence that you are alive. The pain is the evidence that you are alive in Christ. The suffering is the evidence that you are indeed a servant of the cross. And if you are not experiencing that kind of sorrow, at least routinely, with the cross cutting you and crossing you, you have good reason to question whether you're really following Jesus at all. The condition of Peter's ministry today is humility. The basis of Peter's ministry today, love to Christ. The shape of Peter's ministry today is the suffering of the cross to which all of us are called. And the Lord today make us truly mindful of all these things. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.